Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Acevedo. Joining me on this episode is Donna Laughlin. Donna is the founder of the public relations firm LMGPR and is known for her work with futurists and innovators. Donna has launched more than 500 companies, taking them from stealth to market leaders since forming her agency in 2002. She's also the host of Before It Happened, a leading narrative podcast featuring visionaries and the moments, events, and realizations that inspired them to change our lives for the better. Donna and I talk about her roots in journalism and how knowing how to research thoroughly and ask questions intelligently and in a way that advances real insight played a huge role in creating a successful PR firm. We also discuss the difference between public relations and advertising and what draws her to tell the stories of what she calls acorns. It was a wide-ranging and fun conversation. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow, subscribe, like, share, review. It all makes a difference. And now on to my conversation with Donna Laughlin. Hello, Donna Laughlin. Welcome to Making Media Now. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. Where are you speaking to us from today? I'm in Silicon Valley. You are in Silicon Valley. And a little pin drop of a place that used to be called the Land of Heart's Delight. I think I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, There's an entrepreneurial spirit there, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's in the water. Uh, <laughs> it, it used to be in the fruit, uh, the, in the fruit and nuts here, but everything, you know, kind of acclimated into the water. Are you a native of that part of the world? I am. I grew up uh, when most of the valley was apricots and cherries and and plums and walnut orchards. And there was defense and HP and those types of companies that are established. And even the Atari, you know, that was all around. Uh, but the, the kind of the big uh, tech boom came a little later in, in the 80s. But I saw the early, you know, frontier of that. Uh but I get excited because one of the coolest innovation and in techs that I think that is in Silicon Valley, a lot of people don't know about, they can Google it, is on the top of Mount Hamilton Road is Lick Observatory. And it's quite an amazing story about an investor who wanted to have a lens, uh, you know, basically the lens of the of, of the of the solar system on top of the the mountain, and so he was made his money, I believe, with in pianos and in construction, hmm. and ultimately over time he bought the land up on top of this hill and dragged the lens all the way from France on a container via ship, and of course when it got to the top of the hill it was cracked. And I look at that story as being something of a local color story, but it's also kind of a testament of what happened years later when it came to innovation and technology. So in my opinion, some of the tech founders that people talk a lot about were not the first. Uh, it was that, that that vision of being able to look out the valley and into the stars on top of the hill, the land of heart's delight started with, you know, a dream, you know, of a giant observatory. 
Yeah, well, I, I think it's a uh, it's an easy conceit of every generation to think that, you know, before they came along, innovation didn't exist. Disruption didn't exist. We're just throwing new words at it. We're just throwing new semantics at essentially um, a scenario wherein something either never existed but there was a need or something existed and someone figured out how to do it more efficiently and in a manner that it could scale, um, you know, more successfully. So you, you are the founder of a public relations firm called LMGPR that you launched in 2002. But prior to that, uh, you have a, uh, uh, a pretty impressive background in publishing and in journalism. So talk to me a little bit about, those early stages of your career, uh, what inspired you and um, motivated you to pursue work in journalism and in publishing, and then how that merged into your uh, uh, life as the founder of a PR firm? Yeah, well, I had access at a very young age to uh, publishing and, and printing traditional graphics printing, not, uh, you know, offs- I'm talking offset printing sure. uh, and and typesetting in that era. Uh, my father and his brothers owned um, both combination of publishing and, and printing businesses and owned 40 community papers. So by the time I was eight, I was... I had already been schooled in the back end of the of the print shop and the and the publishing. Uh, I wanted to get out and and do the reporting with my uncles. I had two uncles that were actually the the lead uh, reporters for all the uh, publications. So I would go out, and by the time I was ten, I was published and and uh, interviewing uh, on my own with some supervision, of course. So by the time I was in high school, I was, you know, school paper, class president two years in a row and doing, you know, I had a dream. I knew I wanted to be a journalist and I was yeah. going to tell stories. And so off to college, uh, I went, I started at Columbia University, um, wasn't quite equipped for New York yet. Uh, and I ended up coming back to California, finishing at UC uh, Berkeley, uh, also took uh, I have a degree from San Jose State and from UC Berkeley, back to back, and then got my master's degree uh, at UC Berkeley in, in journalism. But before I went back to uh, to, to graduate school, uh, I did internships in college at the Washington Post uh, and with Reuters, now known as Thompson Reuters. And then I took a full-time job with Reuters for about four years and then uh, ended up at the BBC uh, in the UK. And then following that, I came back to the United States. I did several other internships in there too, but by the time I was out of college, I think my resume, they say don't have, and today they say don't have more than 15 years of experience. I already had 15 years of experience by the time <laughs> I got out of college. And, and so I looked older than I really was, um, but it was quite extraordinary to be able to be part of what I call traditional journalism before it was digital and online yeah. and to also see that transition just beginning because I was the first one in the newsroom at BBC that had a computer, wow. which I thought was interesting to think about these days. Yeah, most definitely. Aside from your uncles, uh, did you have any journalistic role models? Well, she just died recently, Barbara Walters. I mean, oh, yeah. she was always on TV as a broadcast uh, journalist. Yeah. Um, but and a pi- and such a pioneer in that field too. And you know, I think a lot of people just remember her from her later decades. You know, where she was doing the celebrity interviews, but she was the first female 
national uh, primetime uh, anchor, along with Harry Reasoner. Yeah, well, I know that when I was really young, my father, the house had to be silent and Walter Cronkite was reporting, <laughs> uh, which was kind of interesting. But my my morning started out with the newspaper. My father had a, his best practice was before we all went, went to work to school, he had the San Jose Mercury News, which was the Pulitzer Prize winning paper at the time in the area. It was bigger than San Francisco Chronicle or Examiner. And he would read the highlights of the, of the news to us. And then our assignment, literally, he'd give us an assignment of three sisters. And we were supposed to, at dinner, when we came back at at the end of the day, I can keep my nobody's connected, nobody's using text or messaging or anything. Exactly. My mother would go to, you know, she was a nurse, and my father would go run the business, and my sisters and I would go off to school. And I'm the youngest. And and so we I was the only one that was, I say, precocious enough to actually take the assignment daily seriously, which is we were supposed to come back with some current event or something that that we were excited about, right? Oh, I love it. And so so that was uh, my father, I think, had a lot of influence on me uh, when it came to uh, media and being a kind of a sponge. You know, he grew up in the radio um, and then, you know, turned TV era. I remember our first TV, color TV, when I was a kid. Um we didn't have a black and white TV. But I just remember just getting the, you know, the beautiful TV and the and the mahogany case, and it was furniture, right? It's like fashion flair, uh, but yeah, yeah the case retrospect- itself would weigh about fifteen hundred pounds. Yeah. And it was like it was a, it was a very considered purchase because it was oh, a yeah. piece of furniture. It wasn't Most just definitely. entertainment. Yeah. And of course, it you know, they had one of those fancy units that had the, the stereo, you know, aspect to it. That was fairly new. And I remember in the VCR when we got our first VCR, my father kept waiting for the prices to drop. <laughs> And yeah. the primary reason he wanted uh, wanted that was because he was big into like Super 8 films and then converted it all to video so that we could watch the videos. Yeah, excellent. So what tools and insights do you think a journalist has developed or has to develop that made it made your transition to public relations so successful? Public relations kind of found me. I didn't seek making that transition at all. Um, I was a journalist and I went on assignment and uh, conducted an interview with a tech company. And a few days later, the head of the communications department called me and wanted to know if I would like to interview for a job at her company. And and she said the the founder and CEO was so impressed. And literally I was like 21 years of age and in grad school. And, and I was so impressed with my questions, wanted to know, you know, if they could if I was employable and uh, would want to come in and join her public relations team. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm a journalist. I appreciate it. And she was pretty persistent. And mm-hmm. finally I, I decided I'd go in and chat with her only to find out that she and the entire staff all came from journalism and communications. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And so they came from, you know, anything uh, from NPR to CNN to, to, um, you know, regional newspapers. And at the time her husband was actually the head of the technology section of the San Jose Mercury news. Uh, and so I was familiar with him and I thought, well, this is kind of a peculiar situation. And then she asked me how much money I was making. <laughs> and uh, school teachers were making more than I was at the time. Right. And when I told her, she laughed. And when she laughed, I realized, oh, well, maybe I should be considering something else. I went in with a, a job that I loved, uh, making three times the amount of money. But I spent 90% of my time writing. 
Mm-hmm. And what I learned very quickly was my instincts of the curiosity of asking questions and being able to distill the information that I needed and and frag, you know, defrag what was important, what wasn't important in the conversation and really listening, tuning in and listening to the experts that I would talk to within the company, whether they were the engineers or they were in in product development or product packaging engineering, uh, I had to just kind of, I mean, the same tools that I was using as a journalist, but just retool them and kind of flip them upside down. Mm-hmm. But I think oftentimes we don't listen, we respond. So listening is so important. Curiosity and discovery, I think are extremely important. And I certainly have had that my entire life. And then I think just, I think the fundamental instincts of being a journalist transition very well into public relations and into other formats, whether it's broadcast TV print or online. But I think the the biggest change has been the the pace in which we receive this information, the digital generation, uh, the web 3.0 that we're now in. What do you think is the the most accurate differentiator between public relations, advertising, marketing? And do you think in the eyes of the the public, the general public, those differentiations are clear or do they all just sort of get get confused into, you know, sort of one one big group? You know, I think in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of conversations about earned content, owned content and paid content. Mm-hmm. I think that helps it frame it a little. But typically there is a separation between the advertising and the editorial rooms, you know, within uh, newspapers and magazines. I think in the in the Instagram uh TikTok world, it's hard for, I think, younger generations to maybe distinguish the difference. I think social influence has actually taken over, and I don't have any stats through this, but I'm I'm sure it's online. Social influence has actually absolutely increased people's buying spend and behavior and responsiveness. And what they see when they see a a, a brand with a celebrity, they're more often to take a look at that. I know my, my children certainly are and they're barely in their 20s. So your public relations firm, uh, LMGPR, uh, you concentrate on working on behalf of futurists and innovators, mostly within the within the tech sector. Who do you and who do your clients see as their primary audience? Are they are they looking to uh, appeal to consumers or would you say more so uh, other businesses? It's both B2B and B2C. Mm-hmm. So emerging technologies that I work with include consumer electronics, products that you and I would have in our house, home, car, uh, or pocket, industrial robot, robots, so cleaning windows and, and, and working with law enforcement or in warehouses, um, artificial intelligence that are, is also being used in robots, but being used in cars and automotive sector and in, in healthcare. So the array of deep tech and new emerging markets is is and, and consumer is B2B and B2C. Then I have other things that are I would call pure B2B, which are the 5G mega internet, you know, equivalent data centers mm-hmm. um, that businesses are running their core competency on. So I am pretty geeky um down in the weeds. I like to say popular science, you know, popular mechanics and and PC, this and that. I mean, I I really thrive in that. And I think it started 
because the first company I worked for was a technology company. Mm-hmm. It was a networking company. I don't know anything about that, but I had to go write the right questions. And once you start asking curiosity and you start getting the information and you kind of sponge and you say, okay, now how does this apply? You know, how does this networking apply within the enterprise infrastructure? A lot of the things that used to be a la carte, like cybersecurity, there's a lot of cybersecurity companies over the years. That same level of security is now in our homes and in our cars. So there's a huge convergence that's happening, even in agriculture. How does how does domain expertise play into you winning the business that you win? I, it, you know, the PR space is a very crowded, very competitive niche, um, and. What do you see as your most effective differentiator? Well, it starts out exactly with the LMG. And it stands for Leadership, Momentum, and Growth. And so every uh, every client that I work with, I I decide, you know, what's depending on the stage that they're in. Usually, they want they want a brand. Uh, reputation and brand evaluation. Mm-hmm. So the leadership component is really important. If they if they're further along and they haven't established, I would say you know uh, based on like my 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 feedback and kind of looking at all the the prior press and media things, if they don't look like they have really a strong brand, then I kind of re- reconfigure that. Mm-hmm. Um, if they haven't established anything, then we start from scratch and and we take it from there. Then watching companies get to that next level, which is more of the momentum and, and growth phase, going from the the first uh, Series A and B funding, but actually getting the product to market and building momentum. And a great example is that I worked with Nightscope Robotics and worked with the company for approximately seven years, and which is a, a long time. But they, we went from the the first. Catalian to an IPO last year. Yeah. Uh, and so now they're in their growth phase, right? Uh, and so getting a, a, a company to go, you know, to the to the leadership momentum and growth, um, oftentimes I don't get to be part of the growth stage. Sometimes they get acquired. Yep. Um, I I worked with a company that within a year, the company got acquired, you know, and, and, which was kind of sad because work really hard to market these companies and make them, you know, have a voice and they get gobbled up sometimes, sometimes two or three times. Sometimes they boomerang back to me and in in a, in a, in a with a different name and a skin. And I said, oh, my goodness, those are the assets from the company I launched five years prior. So that's pretty funny. Do you find that in public relations, it's it's a little bit more difficult to um, measure tangible success, say, versus marketing or advertising, where, you know, if, if there's an increase in sales or if there's an increase in eyeballs or ratings or something of that nature, uh, you know, the advertiser can say, see, we got you those numbers, whereas public relations that takes a longer term approach is it seems way more uh, relationship oriented. Uh, it would feel like that might be a little bit more ambiguous. Yeah. I think monitoring the effectiveness of public relations is, is hard to teach someone who hasn't been part of the process, mm-hmm. but I find when I do my case studies for my clients, I aim really high, uh, which is good and bad. Sometimes I spoil them too soon. But for example, I'll say, you know what, for this first three articles that I want to go after, and I've launched a company in 10 days, three years ago, a, a electric motorcycle company, and they called me and they said they were going to launch at CES 2020. And it was December, 2019. Typically I've worked on this project six months prior. I had 10 days to launch. And so who can I call that's going to make the biggest impact? So it's like Reuters, 
you know, had cast a huge net. Uh, his going to be my my top technology is going to be for consumers going to be CNET, and my top technology more for business is going to be Bloomberg. So out of the gate, I ended up having a dozen of the who's who write about this company. I and then included market analysts as well because I wanted the key influencers there. But over time, what ended up happening is building the momentum, building, telling the narrative story, which I have a process I call the narrative story engine. I don't base my media um, success based on press releases. It's mm-hmm. really based on creating new original content and a steady stream of content. So yes, the company story, the founder story, the purpose story, but also looking at trends, looking at what's happening in the marketplace, looking at uh, competitive landscape and looking at um, new market opportunities. So though all those opportunities to me are different types of stories. So being able to continuously have this news tone, what I've seen is getting the executive team and the founders team more involved, determining right up front who's best for byline and opinion type articles, who's best for broadcast TV and, and print interviews and getting them involved in the process so then they can see the rewards of you know, the output and then the impact and how I measure is based on, I know for a fact, some of my best case studies over time have been the first purchase order coming off of the, off of the fax machine <laughs> and, and, and the CFO running in and, and, and waving his hands going, my goodness, he goes, you know, we just got our first, you know, mega PO. Right. And I smiled when I heard the news because they basically got back in one PO their investment in in LNGPR for the prior three years. There you go. Right? So that was pretty exciting to see. <laughs> yeah. So those are type of very specific things, and I right. do keep track of that. Not just the the reach, the impressions, but also the impact and mm-hmm. the tone. Mm-hmm. And it's important to actually have that two way conversation. If there is, I do believe there is such thing as as bad as bad journalism or bad, you know, articles, people say, oh, there's no, but this is bad news. I do think there is, but you also have to have a, what I call a a rapid response program for that, which is responding to things quickly, having a, um, I like to call a a prevention plan, not a crisis plan, but a prevention plan in case something doesn't work as planned. All those things help in the process of educating and Recently, uh, you know, I looked at some of the from 2022, I looked at, you know, some of the case studies that we needed to update. And I thought, my goodness, we went from 1200 articles to 2500 articles. But in that 2500 articles for this one particular client, that was one client, there were 60 that were outstanding. And so I call them my C-suite articles. And those are the ones I package up and I give to the C-suite. And let them have these so that their sales, their business development, their uh, customer partnership program, they always have an arsenal of coverage that's going to a lot. They can put it in their emails. They can put it in their, their LinkedIn, socialize it, but make sure that they always have something that they can arm themselves for success. Mm-hmm. So you are speaking to us and you work from the epicenter of the place where the words disruptor and visionary and innovator have just saturated uh, the lexicon. But as that happens, those words can start to lose real meaning. How are you able to tell the stories of your clients uh, in a way that position vision at real visionaries as visionaries and position disruptors 
as a step forward. You know, I, I think the word disruptor in the in the sort of the popular media, the general media, people really have come to think when they hear the word disruptor, first they think, okay, well, who's getting the shaft? This is being disrupted, right? So Uber and Lyft, they're disruptors, but I don't like them if I'm a cab driver, you know, um, and, and the, the food delivery services, the first, the, the entrenched interests are always fearful of the disruptors. So how do those words, those, those titles uh, maintain a significant meaning and yet not all feel like they're just varieties of the same term. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I'm actually going to throw a couple of new words um, at you. <laughs> <laughs> the disruptor term often is described, you know, what the venture capital communities and financial communities called, you know, the unicorns, right? And there are no magical unicorns following around Silicon Valley or other tech valleys, but the whole phenomenon, I often work with the acorns, those that are actually, they are emerging markets that are neither disruptor or challenger. They're a totally new market category. Hmm. And so the goal is to just get them to go from whiteboard, a concept to market. And then as we kind of go through the process, and sometimes I'm working with these companies 18 months before we go to launch. I do tend, you know, I can launch a company in 10 days, but I can do that because I've worked with, you know, I've, I've had more than 500 company launches that I've done. And sometimes I'm down at the grassroots at the whiteboard phase. And so that is typically where, you know, when you come out and you go through your funding phase, you get your 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 early stage funding, your series A funding, your series B funding. When you get about series B, that's when everybody says, okay, you're a challenger, you're a disruptor. And I lead with the innovation and the impact. And so what is the purpose of that impact? And so what the last uh, three or four years, I've been working with a lot of sustainability companies. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, okay, that's an overused word too. So what about responsibility? If we were all just a little more responsible, we probably wouldn't be talking so much about sustainability. And so it's really about kind of looking at, you know, these buzzwords that are being used. And I say sometimes overused, right. Mm -hmm. And being able to have a conversation that bring humanizes technology, makes it more tangible, goes back to the founder's original passion of why they're purposely bringing to market. And that's where I've actually talked a lot about purposely purpose-driven public relations is not PR just for vanity. I don't do vanity PR. It's not PR for just because you want to take down, you know, David and Goliath and knock down your, 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 your adversary. It's purpose-driven. Is it to raise venture funding? Is it to bring a new product to market? Is it to actually, uh, you know, position yourself for acquisition? Is it, you know, for what some other business reason? There's another little um, scenario I, I've witnessed over the years. I got innovation heroes mm-hmm. versus ego engineering. And, and my, <laughs> and the, and that's just my way of saying, does it really matter? Is it right. something we really need? Or is it really something that actually, you know, it, you know, is, is really worthwhile. So ego engineered products typically aren't things that you and I necessarily need to have, you know, in our life, right. but in, innovation that actually is benefiting us, that's meaningful, that's thoughtful. 
And along those lines, it's a, I think that's a great segue to talk a little bit about the podcast uh, that you created and you host. It's called Before It Happened. And it's these great conversations with, with these visionaries, with these entrepreneurs who are using technology to really make significant advances across myriad sectors. Um, tell me about what the driver for the creation of that of, of that podcast was and what your uh, what your take has been on that experience so far. I think you you've you've got well over 60 episodes that are um, available. So, you know, I'm sure you've got a sense of what's working and what isn't. Yeah, well, I have sixty more in the in the production phase too, so it's it's continuous, as you know. Uh, this is really where the rubber hits the road. Going back to my old school journalism, I during the pandemic, I you know was home like all of us were, um, and I started writing a book. And I realized it was kind of a lonely, lonely journey writing a book during the pandemic. So I decided that I made a list of. You know, if I were going to have conversations with innovators and and, and futurists, who would they be? And I made a list of people who were accessible to me that were in my network. And then I made a reach list and and, and then I looked at other market topics that I don't, you know, cover at LMGPR, such as food science. It is not an area that I cover or aerospace, things that I'm interested in, but I don't cover. I'm a pilot, but I I, I don't have any aerospace clients. And I also don't have any clients that are in, in what I call traditional, you know, space and uh, either. So I made a reach list and the real, the, the real idea behind the show was conversations with futurists that are imagining the future. But at that moment, when they decided it was going to be literally like dogs playing poker, putting the car, cards all out on the table, deciding, am I going to like, you know, downsize my, my house. I'm going to trade in my car. I'm going to ride my bicycle or whatever it takes to bring an idea to market. And so through that process, you know, I was able to not only get some of my my existing clients, former clients, but I reached out to and to science labs and and space centers and research groups. And I went online and there's a a great uh, online. There's a a, a innovators hall of fame um, where I got the creator of the super soaker and the creator of the sports bra and and uh, went to the computer science museum. And when I was there, I was introduced to Al Alcorn, who's the creator of Pong, which was my first video game experience. (laughs) And so I really branched out. And for me, it was it was a one uh, part kind of tapping into my journalistic roots, but also learning a new medium of podcasting is a, is a great medium. And I wasn't familiar with how to produce or mm-hmm. write for podcasting. So it pushed me out of my comfort zone a lot. Right. It got me more familiar. And now I'm in the process of, of creating kind of a subset through the same podcast called making it happen where I'm bringing venture capitalists and investors, life coaches, business coaches, product design, manufacturing, growth uh, scientists, digital social media experts, all the people that I would rally, you know, have rallied with me and bringing something to market because we got a lot of feedback and responses from our audience saying, geez, I think I have a great idea. I want to bring it to market. I don't know where to start. 
you know, and this may sound like a backhanded compliment, but one of the one of the things that I really was impressed with the most when I was uh, spending some time with your podcast, which is called Before It Happened, is the number of names I didn't recognize because I feel like and I do listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of uh, to- are with conversations with people in the technology sector and the Silicon Valley um, uh, ecosystem. A lot of podcasts, it, I feel like they just shuffle around the same dozen or two dozen people. And a lot of the stories that your guests are telling are it's true innovation. It's true innovation for the better. Uh, and the, you may not know the individuals, but you know the products or you know the services that that they were um, innovating on. So um, I applaud that selection. Well, you know, thank you. You know, it's it, I've actually had a lot of I'd say famous people approach me that just not a good fit because they're 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 on tour, right? Yeah, and right. Uh, I think Almost they're great like a for junket. other shows. Yeah, but I'm excited. I mean, this season coming up, I, I as I mentioned, I have this kind of making it happen series, but I also have a lot of scientists uh, that are coming from aerospace now and, mm-hmm. and more in food science and more in, I'm going to call it uh, healthcare and, and science, uh, more, more things that are related to um, just sleep, as an example, the importance of sleep, the importance of time, the importance of water, uh, fundamental things in our life that we don't think about a lot. But I'm fascinated by those conversations because I value my sleep. And I think that we all need to be very conscious about, you know, the world, the world isn't equal in terms of accessibility to clean water. That's a big conversation. So getting into deeper environmental, social impact, uh, even some things related to ESG. Mm-hmm. Um, as a former journalist, what's your what's your feeling on how uh, the media uh, covers technology um, in in general? Well, I guess I'll use the, the recent artificial intelligence chat. Um, Absolutely, chat. Yeah, GPT <laughs> phenomena that's happening. Um, a lot of sensationalism. I think, you know, it, I don't think the tech journalists necessarily report it as being sensational. I think that it's misinterpreted because it's not clear what the value is. So I think technology put in the wrong hands or articulated without good, like, use case studies, right. I think can be very dangerous. And on the other side of that, what where do you see the responsibility of the uh, of the technology firms in presenting their innovation to the public and sort of, I guess, making clear their intentions? In other words, uh, yes, this is an advance. Yes, this is going to necessitate change, but change doesn't necessarily have to mean destruction, uh, you know, of established um ways of uh, earning your living or even established ways of communicating. It can augment as opposed to replace and destroy. Yeah, absolutely. I wish Elon Musk would call me because I'd love to have that conversation with him. I, I suggest you tweet at him. I hear, I hear he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's very sensitive to that. <laughs> he's busy. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it just chat as a GPT, 
as an example, I think it can be used for research. I think it could be used for uh, the same way we would use Google, right? You go online, you Google, and you look for things. Um, I think, it, you know, we used to use Cliff Notes when I was in college, yeah. and and it was a little bit of cheating. To me, chatbot in these chat and, and content things are a little bit, you know, they're, I'm going to call them helpful aids. I think if, if, if I were to relaunch that product, I would, I would position it as being like the next generation search, searching for content and information beyond your wildest imagination. But also know that the same way we ask Siri and we ask Alexa for directions and they give us the wrong directions or GPS takes us the wrong place. As humans, we still have a responsibility to question things. So I think that the, you know, the whole chat AI assisted, it can be helpful as a, as a writer, I played with it to just look for content and things. But when I've actually had it write something, there are a lot of false positives, let's put it that way, content that was just very questionable. So I don't think that we should accept it as being for face value. I think it could be used for, you know, in research, in education, and perhaps even in certain fields with some accuracy put in, you know, in the medical, um, you know, and think about all the deep scientific research that's happening, you know, within, with labs at major universities. It just seems like they're with their, their, it has potential to be something more autonomous, you know, uh, automotive, you know, I, I work in that space a lot. And so there's a lot of fear and certainly in doubt put in because the minute there's an accident, right. but the key again is we still need to be, and I've had this conversation on my podcast with some brilliant artificial intelligence and, and scientists, is that we need to challenge the status quo on the acceptability of technology. We can go, we can help, you know, metropolitans, I think, will, will benefit by having autonomous buses and transportation for those who are less mobile or able for redundant type of jobs and pickups, you know, uh, garbage, you know, pickups in the morning. I mean, why can't that be autonomous? Right. And I I also think sometimes, uh, you know, in the media, understandably, it's the more uh, dystopian angle that is going to be on the front page and then in the inside section, maybe on page four of the tech section, uh, there's the story similar to what I think you cover a lot of in your on your podcast, where real improvements and real improvements to quality of life via a quote unquote disruptive technology. It's just, you know, again, you're a journalist. You understand the most um, the most eyebrow raising stories often get the uh, the, the highest um, placement. Yeah, we used to just you and I kind of smile because that's my daughter's favorite word. Um, she's a sociology major. <laughs> so she talks to me a lot about media and as it relates to society. And one of the things I discussed with her was the importance for her not it and then looking when looking at the media and looking at social media to always question it, right? Sure. Because you have to. And then there's and social society responds to things. I mean, I don't really I, I don't even know why I know this, but I didn't even watch the Grammy Awards, but I seem to know all about Madonna and <sighs> and all about Harry Styles and all about, you know, different celebrities that I didn't even tune in. But I, I go on, even on tech sites and they're talking about the social impact of as it, as it relates to fast fashion and the artificial intelligence and music. So technology is seeping into so many different 
places mm-hmm. that is in our life. If we look at the Jetsons, which was, I think was definitely a future blueprint of where we are, we don't have to adopt every technology. We can adapt to certain technologies, but I think we also have a choice in what we are willing to accept within our own personal homes and and environments. I have a home security system. I'm literally about to unplug because it's, (laughs) It, it actually does a lot of false, false alarms and things that it shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And that's not why I purchased it. So, and I know that space fairly well, but I think we have to, as consumers, if you go to a big box store, or if you're buying a gift for somebody, it's a little bit like perfume or cologne. It's pretty personable. Think about what it is that you're bringing into someone's life. Earlier, we were talking about before the show, blackberries, right? Sure. How important they were. And we adapted to that and then it got taken away. And then we ended up having these, you know, flip phones and then the smartphones. And I keep telling, you know, people challenge them to look up, look above the waist, look up and see. Maybe, maybe the reason why we've had all these balloons is because nobody has been looking up like the movie. They look figured up. we wouldn't notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So you mentioned you were uh, you were in the process of writing a book. How's the process going? Is is there a light at the end of the tunnel? And what will what will the book be dealing with? You know, it's it's a different process than I thought. It's a slower process. I when I was in college, I worked for computer science uh, and math book division of uh, Addison Wesley. And I think we oh, yeah. I edited like 80 books different and had a master Chicago style writing a book is, is, is a huge discipline. I mean, it's great for me to go through the process. It's not newsroom style writing. Um, I have to write more words and that might finally be published, but my book is really focused on how I started my business. And the teaser headline is $5 and a half a tank of gas, which is exactly (laughs) how I started my business. The company, the tech company that I was working for lost its funding and the entire company was let go. Not just a percentage, the entire company. And I had only been there for six weeks. And I remember walking to my car with a with the a, a severance check that they gave me for 90 days, which I thought was pretty generous considering I'd only been there six weeks. Yeah, that's not a bad balance. And, and my my motivation was I 2002 was not a great year to get to go get a new job. Definitely was not a great year to get it to start a company. And I literally drove straight to the business license office of downtown Silicon Valley in San Jose. And on my way, I called a, for, a, a former employer. I called a venture capitalist and I called an editor that I knew and let them know that I was available for consulting. The words that came out of my mouth, I just happened because I was just being, you know, like real in the moment. So my book, uh, basically is the setup for that. I understand the entrepreneur's pain. I understand um, the need to launch and be agile and quick and to reset. Um, but the book is basically my wisdom for uh, innovators and entrepreneurs, or as I like to say, entrepreneurs, geeks, and divas, <laughs> uh, giving them the power of being able to understand public relations, how it can be used to wow, wow media, uh, win customers, and raise their revenue. And so it's basically, a am going to call it my pocket pal equivalent in the in the printing industry, the pocket pal guide is like the, the go-to book for everything that you want for the graphics. Well, this is that book, um, that 
you know, hopefully it's going to help a lot of future, you know, the, those that are the guests on my show and those that mm-hmm. haven't been on my show, um, be able to be successful with. Well, I wish you all the best in the completion of that book and the publication of that book. We've been speaking with Donna Laughlin. She is the founder of LMG PR, and she's also the host of a great podcast called Before It Happened. It's been real fun chatting with you. But thank you so much, Michael. I, I, every one of your episodes is dynamic. So I hope this one is too. Thank you again. 